0: One show,
1: one question,
0: three fans and three perspectives. This is Doctor Who debate, where we all take a side
1: and tackle a controversial question about Doctor Who.
0: Is there any other kind?
1: This time we're asking, does Russell T Davies, Stephen Moffat or Chris Chibnall have the best take on the
0: Daleks? On RTD's side, me, Tom Tidd, arguing his take on the Daleks was the best.
2: On Moffat's side, me, Ingiger, arguing that Moffat's take on the Daleks was supreme.
1: And on Chibnall's side, me, Neo, arguing that Chris Chibnall has the best Dalek take of all.
2: Each of us will take turns over two rounds where we each have five
0: minutes to argue our case.
1: Then we'll all give our closing statements and rebut each other's
0: points. There will be no judges present, because that's where you come in.
1: Yes, you, dear viewer, choose which side convinced you the most the quality of our arguments, how well we use our time, anything that you deem worthy of judgment.
0: We would love to hear any and all of your thoughts, so please sound off in the comments and join the debate. Now, Now, let's let's begin begin the Dalek Dalek debate. debate. They're just killers, very
3: functional, they're very brutal. It's hardwired into me that they are scary. It's It's a bit like asking, why is the dark scary? I don't know, it just is.
0: To write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. The words are those of Theodore W. Adorno, a cultural critic of the 20th century whose influential work discussed the risks of abstracting history through art. What Adorno did was argue against the prevalence of art which is divorced from physical experience, against art that is contemplative or metaphorical, the things which relieve us from having to consider the true reality of horrors like the Holocaust. In that particular quote, Adorno takes the bold step of naming his aesthetic enemy as poetry, a sacred cow of high art to hammer home the serious radicalism of his idea. For an aesthetic declaration which is so confrontational in nature, Adorno's powerful argument is impossible to ignore, and his influence has rippled across the way we represent history and art in the years since. Which brings me to science fiction, itself a mutant strain of historical fiction, And I don't mean like the first doctor stepping into historical periods. I'm talking about science fiction at large. Our speculations on the future, more often than not, are really reflections on our past. Our dystopias based on perceived past mistakes, our utopias built on perceived former glories. Just as our historical fiction can be hugely speculative, just how much of what we see of the tribe of gum is based on historical evidence, for instance. So can our speculative fiction be hugely retrospective? The boundary between science fiction and historical fiction is far more permeable than can be said for many other seemingly competing genres. And so we come to Daleks. From the landscape of post-war Britain arises these figures who are obsessed with racial purity, who live in the fallout of a nuclear war, who could be seen on the big screen using gas-based firepower, and on the small screen mimicking a Nazi salute in the streets of London. Following this on-screen situation, or more accurately, causing it, is their immense popularity among the public. Here we have villains which directly derive from the perpetrators of the great atrocity of recent history. And we also have children in playgrounds mimicking their battle cry, and buying merchandise with their image plastered on it. Now, writers since then have used the dialects as allegories for fascism, or specifically Nazism, to varying degrees since their opening appearances. But the fact remains that at the very nucleus of the dialects is based on a very real-world evil, and no matter how far removed from their specific influences they become, I doubt that they can ever really shake that. What I'm getting at is that the dialects fundamentally, are a troublesome idea, and that's putting it lightly. And that's not just because kids in playgrounds say exterminate. It's because of those ideas Adorno discussed. When you use an allegory like this, you strip something like Nazism or fascism of its specific and real horror. You remove its authentic characteristics and turn them into a faceless cartoon used to tell oversimplified stories that ultimately exist to cheaply lionize and pump up the home front in useless jingoistic narratives. Underselling the horror so that we can oversell our virtue. And I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to dramatically expose some never-before-uncovered secret crime at the heart of Doctor Who here. These are well-trodden roads of criticism that can be found even within some Doctor Who stories themselves, like Rob Shearman's Jubilee being Exhibit A. And I've long since come to terms with the fact that I won't necessarily agree with the overall ideas of Doctor Who, science fiction itself being something of a bad idea factory. What I'm trying to get across is that no Dalek writer is innocent, so to speak. None of the three showrunners we're dealing with today just as Truffaut said there's no such thing as an anti-war war film, I don't think I've ever seen a dialect story that I would classify as tasteful. Only the hyper-metafictional jubilee really comes close. With all that in mind, with the inherent vice of dialect stories hopefully established, it doesn't mean that all the texts on the dialects have to be equally barbaric, to use Adorno's term. Therefore, I think it's high time we start to reconstruct specific texts on the dialects, piece by piece, dialekanium gerda by dialekanium gerda. So I think Russell T Davies had the best take on the dialects, though I'd forgive you for thinking I was never going to get there, so let's not waste any more time. I'm going to use these 60 seconds to establish some criteria for what makes an effective depiction of the dialects, why I think RTD executed them so skillfully. First and foremost, what I mentioned before about shallow dialect stories ultimately serving to boost jingoistic narratives for Britain against a sanitised abstract foe, we'll call that the Pertwee pitfall for, for, for simplicity's sake. That's my first criterion. Don't just use dialects to absolve the human race or to absolve Britain. That's way too easy, way too abstract. Like literally all fiction, dialects are the product of human imagination anyway. We're the ones who gave them the cool guns. Russell T. Davies was the best at avoiding this. This should be no surprise, as he is someone whose writing has always had a fascination with the lengths and limits of human cruelty. Firstly, on this score, he up and hired Rob Shearman to bring them back. And I know what you're thinking 2005's dialect is nowhere near as radical a critique of human society as Jubilee was. And you'd be right, but still, look at that episode. The reason the dialects are back is because of the actions of a corrupt, powerful human being, one Henry Van Staten, who is obsessed with collecting and cataloguing things, stripping them of context. The echoes of Jubilee are there, the moral rot at the heart of a human as the catalyst for horror. But that's nothing Professor Lesterson didn't already do in Power of the Dialects. So... I raise your RTD's self-penned, genuinely innovative Dalek masterpiece, the series one finale. The Daleks are utterly terrifying here, not because of their grand entrance, but because of the thing that sets the stage for it. A drip feed of bad, pacifying television. There's no shallow and half-hearted condemnation of fascism here. We see how our own world sets the stage for the entrance of the fascist actors. How individuals are trained to see the world through a lens of Big Brother and the weakest link. Social competition, every man for himself. And the episode shows how the humans of the game station have learned to think of this vicious game as something which helps them. The massacre on floor zero in The Parting of the Ways is frightening for so many reasons, but chief among them is that while those humans are hiding for their lives, the character of Roderick is still screaming, demanding for his cash prize, and that is the thing that sets the stage for the Daleks. There's no absolution here, no cheap scapegoating there, just the machinery of our now perverted democracy, the true shadow of the Daleks, plain for all to see. Then there's the openly imperialist Torchwood in series 2, not let off the hook, the roaring twenties excess in series 3 that helps set the stage for the second world war itself, the Daleks profit off it, and again, not let off the hook. Hook. Series four even begins to deconstruct the myth of the Doctor. Davros presents him as a coward who uses human beings like soldiers and leads them into oblivion. Obviously not worse than Davros, but importantly not let off the hook either, or lazily lionized by placing human beings directly in the shadow of the Daleks. Russell's take extends a tentacle that little bit closer to something three-dimensional.
4: What did they do to make Daleks so scary? I don't. I don't know. I can't take any credit for it. I wasn't. I, I was about one year old at the time when they did that, um, and they didn't phone my house a lot. But I mean, it's, 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 they are rather beautiful things. It's hard for me to look at Daleks. Uh, they're so wired into my brain. But people who have never seen Daleks uh, from other countries will stare at them in fascination. There is something very good about that and very satisfying about that design.
2: I consider Stephen Moffat to have the best take on the Daleks because he uses them in ways that only Daleks can be used. He engages with specific things about them in order to consistently illuminate the characters and themes in his own stories. They play a firm and confident role in the system of symbols that make up Moffat's drama. It's no coincidence that once the initial blip of Mark Gatiss's victory of the Daleks is out of the way and Moffat takes more direct stewardship of them, Daleks come into focus specifically at points when their emotional accompaniment to conflicts for the main characters rather than just showing up with another sensationalised scheme to take over the world. So, in Asylum, for example, their inability to love echoes the fractured relationship between the Ponds and the Doctor. In Time of the Doctor, the Doctor is struggling with his own mortality and the Daleks form something of the final boss, in other words, the ultimate representation of death. In Into the Dalek, the Twelfth Doctor is struggling with this inner conflict with his new persona and, of course, the nature of the Daleks comes into question there. And then in Magician's Apprentice, we're delving into the Doctor's pathological relationships with Clara, Missy, and of course Davros himself. Now, Into the Dalek is one of the most key examples, because in depicting the Doctor trying to fix a Dalek by sharing part of himself with it, we not only get insight into his struggle with his own feelings of hatred, of rage, but we also see how the Doctor uses the Daleks as something to define himself against. Quite elegantly, the fact the Daleks are the original villains of the show is incorporated into a character beat rather than merely a continuity reference. He says, I call myself the Doctor, but it was just the name, until I went to Scarrow, I met you lot, and I understood who I was. The Doctor was not the Daleks. Of course, the irony of this is that he is more similar to them than he likes to admit, but ultimately later on he's able to come to terms with that as part of his arc. The Daleks form an interwoven, intertwined piece of his character arc. Conversely, in The Magician's Apprentice two-parter, we get the flip side of that, because the Daleks are here used to explore Davros's character. Something axiomatic the Doctor says to Davros about the Daleks here is, everything you are, they are. In other words, they're Defensive shielding of themselves in tanks is analogous to Davros's own paranoia and fear of the outside world. Davros's fascistic belief in a struggle between races is what informs the Daleks' quest to dominate other species, and his refusal to face death with dignity is also theirs. Moffat never forgets that everything Daleks are comes from people, first and foremost. And that notion of a fascist worldview is where the other component of the Daleks comes in, what they represent ideologically. And Moffat particularly stands out in exploring this thematic content. So, for example, A key point in Into is that Daleks have an engineered device in their brains that actually filters their memories in order to make them more efficient. In other words, they function better if they deliberately shut themselves off from inconvenient realities. And isn't that a potent metaphor for fascism, if you've ever heard one? Moffat really makes a point of characterising Daleks as stunted, psychologically malformed. We see in Witches Familiar how complicated concepts like love or tolerating difference don't even exist in their emotional vocabulary, but what they do have, interestingly, is nostalgia. They literally make Scarrow great again rebuilding a classic themed version of it and even more interestingly Moffat depicts them with a degree of class solidarity while for example Into the Dalek shows them at perhaps the height of their powers which is familiar looked at what Dalek are like in deep decline and while certain other interpretations of Daleks often have different types bickering among themselves descending into backstabbing Magician's Apprentice declining Scarrow has all the Daleks fraternised together against a more fundamental threat the passage of time just like the real world ruling class, the forces of imperialism and capitalism, when the chips are down, their allegiance to each other supersedes any superficial divisions. So we get this fetishistic and also nostalgic merchandise-like Dalek collection. And this whole conceit, Adds nuance to those past stories of Daleks fighting each other rather than simply ignoring them, and it deepens the overall metaphor. And also, just like the real world social order, we see the Daleks depicted as sitting atop a huge base of suffering. Now, the sludge sewer Daleks are brilliant for reasons I'll get into later, but the thematic importance is that they represent what the Daleks are in denial of the waste they create, despite their insistence on purity, and their own impermanence. So naturally, Moffat has the story conclude with the Daleks being consumed. By that very thing. And there's nothing remotely like this in the other showrunners' Dalek stories. Morfet is willing to engage poetically, philosophically and politically with Daleks, not as just vague forces of death or memories of war, but symbols for types of human behaviour.
3: The moment you think you've destroyed them, they keep coming back. And as the Doctor says, I'll never be rid of them.
1: Are you afraid of the Daleks? Have you ever been afraid of the Daleks? When were you afraid of the Daleks? What made you afraid of the Daleks? And what stopped you being afraid of the Daleks? Are you excited by the Daleks? Are you weary of the Daleks? When you see a Dalek, how do you feel? Is Russell T Davies afraid of the Daleks? Is Stephen Moffat? Is Chris Chibnall? I'm sure that 2005's Dalek episode scared many of us. That lone Dalek methodically wrestling control away from those who thought they had it completely under their thumb, the crazed cultish Daleks sinking their tendrils into media, manipulation of a population they would later cull and sift and pulp. Did they scare you much after that? Did their banter with the Cybermen scare you? Did their spawning of a phallus-faced American-accented gangster scare you? Did the Daleks made to twirl comedically around by Donna scare you? Did their cameo in the waters of Mars scare you? Did their skittle colours scare you? Did it scare you to see a Dalek sassed by River Song? Did it scare you to see a Doctor dismantle a Dalek with ease? Did it scare you when they scuttled around a little parliament of their own and belated at the Doctor for assistance? Did their lasering and oops accidentally hitting each other in the 50th anniversary, did that scare you? Did the Dalek tank in Matt Smith's last story scare you? Seeing a Dalek infected by the Twelfth Doctor's own hatred of them was pretty interesting. Hmm. Did it scare you? Series 9 opens with a fascinating exploration of Dalek and Davros ideology, ending with a symbolically potent resolution of decomposed sewer Daleks eating away at the healthy ones. Yeah. Was that scary to you? Did a trapped Dalek in Hellbent scare you? Did their cameo in the pilot scare you? Did the 12th Doctor's friendly Dalek chatting with him in Twice Upon a Time scare you? I think you know what I'm skirting around here. It's a refrain we've probably all heard. Chris Chibnall made the Daleks scary again. Yes, this is what I am arguing, though perhaps not entirely in the way you might think. Chibnall made the Daleks scary. I am not arguing those prior Dalek episodes are bad, I am not arguing Chibnall is necessarily a superior writer to RTD or Moffat. All I am arguing is that Chibnall has the best take on the Daleks, and that take is to make them scary, and to make them immediate, and to make them close to our lives, to induce discomfort, apprehension, and fear. Resolution and revolution of the Daleks have gruesome scenes demonstrating the destructive power of the Daleks. A lone Dalek lays waste to heavily armed British soldiers, new Daleks abruptly and indiscriminately murder untold British citizens with ease. This isn't Daleks swarming around the sky as an intangible threat. This isn't banter. This isn't philosophizing with the doctor. This isn't jingoistic propping up of Britain or any of those that oppose the Daleks. This is immediate and visceral violence and terror. But what makes that take superior? Why is making the Daleks scary a better take than using them more as vehicles to illuminate characters and themes of the doctors and their friends, and as stake raises for finales more about the companions and so on? There are certainly good episodes doing those things, as Tom and Gig highlighted. So why is a Dalek take centred around making them scarier? What makes that better? To answer that, I want to pull back to how Tom opened this debate. Tom quoted Adorno in saying to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, Evidently, there are some horrors so real that cultural aesthetics and existential life disconnect in their wake, making some art become an inadequate way to channel the reality of the world. I think the following clarifying clause of Adorno's is useful here. It reads, after Auschwitz, no further poems are possible, except on the foundation of Auschwitz itself. What this says to me isn't that poetry after the Nazis is insufficient, so much that poetry after the Nazis cannot be indifferent. There are some horrors so great and so terrible and so real that they cleave history. There is a before and there is an after. And as Tom and Gig have articulated, the Daleks bubbled up out of representation of the horrors of Nazism, and fascism, these real world evils. And so I argue that the best take on the Daleks is therefore one that actively recognises the immediacy of that horror they represent. One that imbues them with fear and with real world relevancy. As Gig very perceptively highlighted, some previous episodes do explore the politics of Daleks and what they represent in an intelligent, nuanced and admirable way. I do not contest this in the slightest. But I'm reminded of how George Steiner once responded to Adorno's quote we've been discussing. He pointed to how Giza King was playing the complete Debussy piano music on the very nights that people were being transported to the Nazi extermination camps and how there's not the slightest witness that he didn't play magnificently or that his audience wasn't wholly responsive and profoundly moved. So he sees Adorno's meaning as formalising outcries against Nazism into art, as still adding a mystery of acceptability to the phenomenon. I agree that the series 9 premiere is an intelligent and scathing exploration of the fascist death cult ideology and the type of class solidality underpinning it. Yes, where does that get us? What does it achieve? What does it do beyond soar over the heads of some fans and just make other fans nod and murmur about oh what an intelligent and well-written story it is? What has been achieved? And so here I argue that it is not enough to make the Daleks a representation of horror, but in good conscience they must be made as terrifying and immediate themselves if they even to approach some justifiability in adorning the world with hyper-commercialised, exceedingly popular merchandise and marketability based around these Nazi icons. And next I will argue just how Chibnall made the Daleks scary, and why it is so much more immediate, arresting and thus justifiable than RTD and Moffat's approaches. <laughs>
3: absolutely vital The in the middle of time wars and we will conquer the earth and we will defeat the doctor. In the middle of all that epic stuff, there's something really indiscriminate and savage and they go and slaughter a room full of innocent people who are just there. They slaughter them because they're there,
0: because they're human. That is what the Daleks are. I started my argument showing how Russell's Daleks always intrude on the human world. Whereas, really, Stephen Moffat's dialects are so far away, stuck in their bubbles where they can't hurt us. And Chibnall's dialects are really pawns and reactionary narratives that celebrate the status quo. But I'll leave that for you guys to discuss. I believe Russell T Davies' dialects achieve that vital equilibrium. Their horror is tactile, real, felt... If their narrative presence becomes too intellectual or too shallow then they're neutralised as different forms of that poetry that Ordorno condemned. But by placing human beings directly in the shadow of the dialects, Russell's take extends a tentacle that little bit closer to something three-dimensional. So, RTD's dialects juxtapose them with corrupt human systems while absolving the usual pitfalls of letting them off the hook or losing their inherent horror they're actually obsessed with humans. The word symbiotic comes to mind, with the mutual aid humans and dialects provide for each other in RTD's stories, even becoming part of the dialect's essential genetic makeup, much to their chagrin. But if that's the content, what about the form? What is it about RTD's writing style and the visual work of his team that puts his dialects above the rest? I'll start with the work of Joe Ahern, the director of both dialect stories in the first series. A large part of the episode dialect is dedicated to showing how good it is at killing. One by one, popular myths and jeers about the dialects are dispelled. The plunger is put to horrific use, its midsection is shown to rotate quickly, it flies upstairs again, and finally it demonstrates creativity by using overhead sprinklers to electrify the floor space of the underground base. All this stuff is extremely functional for the episode. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. It's about showing how scary a dialect is so that we're frightened when lots of them turn up in the finale. In these sequences, it's really more of a slasher film than a serious reflection on evil. But, crucially, when our perspective shifts to Rose in the episode's second half, we see the camera work shape up to Shearman's writing in the episode's climax, totally static shots of the corpses the Dalek has left in its weight. The edit is slideshow-like in its patient pacing. There's no pleasure whatsoever to be derived from these images. We're effectively with Rose for the rest of the episode, and Ahern focuses more on the Dalek's sheer incongruity as an actor among organic life. Think of the way Rose has to dodge its eyestalk when it turns to look at her in the crammed lift, the way it steamrolls Van Staten in his loft, and finally the ultra-theatrical staging of its closing scene, a single spotlight shining down on it. The self-cannibalising nature of evil laid bare in all its grotesqueness, stark and prosaic, this direction is diametrically opposite to the way the dialect is shot in, say, Resolution. The sequence Neo touts is imbuing the dialects with their deserved horror, where the camera never moves beyond positively ogling the recon dialect as it explosively fights the British soldiers. Boom, pow, helicopter shot. Creatively bankrupt. Coming back to the finale in the floor zero massacre sequence, it's a case study for how you show dialect brutality on screen. First there's the setup with Roderick obstinately demanding his cash prize, but also crucial to the sequence is the fact that the dialects don't have to descend to floor zero and kill those people. If anything, it'll only hinder their apprehension of the Doctor at the top. No, the massacre is an entirely gratuitous, emotionally spurred act of sheer chaos, as all wanton acts of violence ultimately are. But to have it set out dramatically by Davies and Ahern just rams home the abject horror of it. These dialects are like a force of nature, and they come flooding through those doors like a torrential flood. Another sequence, The Death of Linda Moss, has a similar effect. When you see its headlights flash four times, the syllables of X Minnate," becoming an unshakable pulse running through the series, a dark inversion of the four pulses that RTD recognised from the series' theme tune and framed as the heartbeat of a Time Lord. When we see the Dalek lights silently flash, Linda doesn't understand it, but she knows it means death, which is a perfect encapsulation of the sheer evil at work. We can never really understand it, but we know it means death. Finally, in terms of storytelling techniques, what RTD really lends the dialects is what he lent to Doctor Who as a whole. He imbued the dialects with sophisticated characterization of the kind you'd see in genres outside of science fiction, your dramas, your soap operas. Not to say that the dialects have never had personalities, but for example, Russell T Davies was the first to suggest that the dialects' anger comes from their environment, rather than written in their genetic code. In Doomsday, the doctor posits that the dialects are locked inside a cold metal cage, no wonder they scream. This is such a welcome innovation, because entertaining the idea that the Daleks' personalities are genetically hardwired, it effectively legitimises fascist lines of thought. The Daleks aren't just a totally evil ideology, they're a totally evil race. But hey, science fiction is science fiction, and it will probably keep using these messy allegories until the end of time. Indeed, what Gig recognises as a key part of Moffat's take on the Dalek is how their traits are ordained by Davros, legitimising him as their god. Moffat, in all probability, intends this as a take on how dictators influence their followers' perception of the truth, but nothing can shed the diegetic truth of the dialect's genetic engineering. The stench of allegory is all over this. Davis's take is better and doesn't have the side effect of legitimizing the dialect's own ideology.
4: That voice is amazing. Also, well, just the idea that they're so emotional and screechy and panicky and horrible, and yet they're sort of robots. That's fascinating. And the very minimalist animation they have is very, very cool. People just love those things. They are still by far Doctor Who's most uh, most popular monster. And I, I think they're the best monsters ever in anything.
2: We need to make the Daleks scary again. It's something you hear so often from so many fans, so often preoccupied with the conundrum of how you make something so inherently quirky like a Dalek, something that's become so over-familiar over the decades, a toy, into a source of horror that recaptures both their original strangeness and, of course, the sheer evil that inspired them. Robert Shearman's Dalek made a huge impression on fans. It seemingly achieved this scary-again goal by depicting the Dalek as an extremely efficient killer in a big action movie, basically, and as a result, fans now often like to praise Chibnall for doing the same thing whenever he has a Dalek rack up a big body count. Firing a CGI laser has become like a ritual, a piece of sensationalised gossip basically. I'm in the opinion that Moffat is greatly helped by his willingness to mine the Daleks for conceptual and existential horror. Just as earlier on I discussed how Moffat delves into the ideas behind the Daleks, there are various examples of how rather than simply having them kill a load of people or atomise them he suggests that their abject evil may be associated with things that go beyond death, even worse than death. The sewer sludge Daleks are one surprising example, revealing that it may be even scarier to exist as a Dalek than to be killed by one. Daleks are doomed to decay into formless, constantly aware slime, constantly screaming. It's the ultimate end game for a life form that spends its existence consumed by hatred and refuses to accept the cycle of life and death. It's an angry image, a condemnation. Which is Familiar really reframes Daleks as these gothic entities with vampiric aspects which goes a massive way towards distinguishing them from the bland killer robot shells they've often functioned as in past stories elsewhere, as Moffat builds out a picture of the Daleks' presence in the universe, including Dalek camps we never quite see, perhaps because they're scarier to imagine, one thing he introduces is those stalk servants that they convert humans into, and the Doctor tells one of them, you had a daughter, and she brilliantly replies, I know, I've read my file. What fascinates me here is that rather than Cybermen with no emotion, these puppets of the Daleks can easily deploy their old memories and emotions, but only as a tactic, a calculation. Their souls become like toys for the Daleks, Else, I think it would be considered fate worse than death. And in tandem with bringing back the human to Dalek conversions from Classic Who in that episode, Moffat stresses the Dalek's capacity to not merely end lives but also ruin them. But when it comes to the more traditional phenomenon of scary Dalek scenes, obviously the moments where the Dalek actually attack people are the most important. And what comes immediately to mind there is that unforgettable sequence in Magician's Apprentice where Moffat generates immense tension from the Daleks doing nothing. They aren't screaming, they aren't shouting, they're not even moving. They're just waiting for Clara to run. And this is a rare moment when we see the Daleks as truly animal. The extent of their bloodthirsty cruelty comes out when all the usual bluster has disappeared. Moffat has Davros narrate the scene with a speech that, true to form, explores the horror of the Daleks as ideas as a state of mind. They need her to run. Their blood is screaming kill. Hunter and prey locked in the ecstasy of crisis. Is this not life at its purest? Reaffirming again that the Daleks are expressions of a scary ideology, not just a scary monster. And even earlier than that, Moffat is interested in making a Dalek attack feel different. There's that unique moment in Asylum where the Doctor is trapped in a room with a group of barely lucid, PTSD-addled Daleks who will recognise him. In other words, a situation he can't verbally weasel his way out of in a manner that is so often defanged Daleks in their past appearances. As they slowly encroach on him with their plungers, and note, by the way, the lack of shame Moffat has in the plungers, not attempting to give them cool CGI plunging powers like RTD or just removing them like Chibnall. As they approach, the Doctor panics. He is absolutely screaming at Oswin to get him out of there. It's a rare moment for Smith, and an instant of intense fear from usually the most confident character. It's one thing to have human characters cowering in fear of Daleks, like in The Stolen Earth, as a means of making us feel that fear, but when it's the Doctor himself suddenly exposed like that, we have to take it even more seriously. Because, as every Dalek writer has to eventually confront, very little about the Daleks as a physical presence is scary on its own. Making them scary means challenging our imaginations, using the unique assets of fiction and performance to convey the idea that they are scary, because our imaginations are capable of scaring us in ways no mere picture on a TV screen can. Intangibility is not something to be sniffed at. Not all trauma is obvious, tangible or visible. Moffat has spent his whole career tinkering with the possibilities of fiction, and what he gives us are Daleks who are scary to think about well beyond the moment we stop seeing them on the screen.
0: Chris's vision for this episode was always that we would do a Dalek story, but in reverse.
3: What I wanted to do was just tell the story of a a single Dalek, how strong an opponent that is, but also start from the creature inside the Dalek and how much that is intent on surviving, how good it is at surviving, how it's its main purpose.
1: Earlier, I talked about making the Dalek scary, you both seem quite fixated on mocking Chibnall's scenes of visceral Dalek violence, as either ogling or superficial. My friends, Chibnall's take on the Daleks goes so, so much deeper than wanton violence. Let's talk about how he makes that fear immediate and applicable and real. To frame this, let's dwell a second on music. Where previous Daleks were announced with things like choral refrains or appregiated synths, Chibnall's Daleks are announced with The clearest musical marker of evil and terror there is The tritone First interval to the octave to the diminished fifth You might recognise it from a lot of heavy metal It's the basis of Black Sabbath's song Black Sabbath from their first album entitled Black Sabbath Using it for the Daleks is an arresting announcement A musical way of saying something is wrong So what specifically is wrong? Most Doctor Who fans would agree that Nazism is wrong, and therefore that the most tangible signifiers of the Daleks, a desire to exterminate those unlike them, obsession with ideas of racial purity, a cruel and malevolent disregard for the sanctity of life, that those sorts of things are wrong. What's particularly unique to Chibnall is examining why and how this sort of ideology bubbles up and proliferates in the first place. RTD showed a sci-fi horror of these Nazi parallels pacifying humanity through media control in the far future. Moffat explored the internal class, aspect and inherency of decay to a Nazi mindset in a revived Scarrow, but Chibnall's domain is present-day Earth, where all this is immediate and actively matters. Both Resolution and Revolution of the Daleks abound with wrongness. To bring back musical thinking, imagine both episodes littered with out-of-key notes, off-tune instruments, our devil's tritone. These elements raise our haggles. they make us alert, they make us question. They prevent us from sidling purely into the entertainment and escapism that so many Dalek episodes offer. I speak not of supposed errors in the storytelling, I speak of ultra-realistic nuances in ideology. The most striking wrongness comes in the Doctor's conceptualisation of the Daleks and Resolution. 28 minutes into the special, the Doctor realised that the episode's Dalek is a reconnaissance scout, the first type of Dalek to leave Skaro. A scout is, of course, a soldier or employee sent ahead of a larger force to gather information about an enemy and their residence. Three minutes later, the doctor calls that self-same Dalek a refugee from the planet Skaro. A refugee is a person who has been forced to leave their country to escape some type of disaster or persecution. The doctor calling a Dalek a Nazi parallel, a refugee, that would be bad enough, but it's minutes after she correctly realised it was in fact a type of soldier. This sort of targeted xenophobic categorization calls to mind the way some people in this day and age use the word refugee. It speaks to a hypocrisy of the doctor. If this doctor is a pillar of hope and symbol of morality we should follow and look up to, what does it mean for them to make a xenophobic slip, to make a racist conflation between malevolent soldiers and persecuted refugees? In Revolution of the Daleks, Trump-esque figure Jack Robertson tells the scientist who recreated the Daleks that you know what your problem is, Leo? You're too clever. This is why people don't like experts. I believe... The Doctor's hypocrisy calls to mind the typo of hypocrisy, inconsistency and self-righteousness that angers those that feel alienated by such platitudes of hope and an ever-progressing just world that the Doctor expresses. Tom says Chibnall's Daleks reinforce reactionary status quo narratives. What I am saying is that Chibnall highlights these very narratives and thus confronts us with the reality of how Dalek-esque ideology survives and is perhaps unwittingly reinforced. Chimnel emphasises the inadequacy of so many that style themselves enemies of the Daleks, their inadequacy to oppose them. When the Doctor thinks she has defeated the Dalek in resolution, it instead simply takes a new host. All she can say for herself is, I'm sorry, i miscalculated. When she confidently tells the Dalek it's no threat because it lacks weapons, it informs it that she's wrong, and it does indeed have weapons, to which all she can respond is right, okay, well, whoop de doo The Doctor only defeats the Daleks and Revolution of the Daleks by sacrificing a TARDIS, something the show has gone to pains to communicate to us as sentient and living beings, with no thought or mention of its welfare. This is wrong. And the complicit billionaire that allied and sold out humanity to these Nazi parallels gets away with it, to the point where it's suggested he may even win the presidency through the dishonest way he frames his treason. I don't deny the strength of RTD and Moffat's takes on the Daleks, but seeing the UK government ally with a technocrat uncaring of how their work affects humanity, and a shady American businessman with a keen eye for public relations, seeing them unleash a new kind of quasi-police force in the shape of a Nazi parallel monster upon protesters, and see them basically get away with all that, because our hero, the Doctor who constantly insists on the power of hope and that fascists never wins, seeing her downplay and deflect and miscalculate this threat and only succeed in destroying it by betraying, selling out and sacrificing a living ally we're perhaps meant to forget about the sentience and humanity of, yeah, that scares me a lot more than what RTD and Moffat brought to the table thoughtful recontextualisation of Daleks' hatred or high-minded musings on their ideology, Chimnall's Daleks are scary not just because of the threat they represent, but because Chimno shows us how vague resistance to them is no protection from
3: their evil. The While the episodes may vary, there is one thing they all have in common.
0: Can I introduce Larry Gold, his
3: composer, Doctor Who? Hello! Everyone knows uh, the
1: music's important in Doctor Who.
3: Easy on the applause, you
1: haven't heard it yet. And I didn't have to think twice about whether I wanted to be part of that. I just want to say thank you to you all for coming at fairly short notice and for (laughs) putting the work in and for providing the operatic score for the first unveiling of the new Dalek.
0: What is happening? What is happening? What is happening? That is the lyric of Murray Gold's Dalek leitmotif, translated to English and originally sung in Hebrew. It can be read as the voices of the Daleks' victims, or even from the Daleks themselves, their own confused and contradictory existence causing them internal pain. Either way, the swelling melody and repetition of it shows the creeping and unrelenting way of force like the Daleks intrudes and upends peaceful ways of life. The tritone, used by Sagan Akinola to reveal the Daleks in resolution. It's big, it's exciting. Sure, it conveys a bit of wrongness. Translates the grandiosity of metal music onto a dialect story. But what do the chugga-chugga sixteenth notes in the Dalek car chase in that same story convey? It seems to owe a lot to punk rock. Does it convey rebellion? Can we see the Dalek as a rebel running away from the repressive state apparatus of the police? If that's the case, then gee, that dialect seems pretty awesome. I kid, but that's the problem of reading Chibnall's dialect stories as the Doctor and the humans being weak, and that it's a cautionary tale for how not to behave lest the Daleks take over. Chibnall's Doctor is one of the most didactic we've ever seen, very rarely portrayed as being wrong, and if they are seen to contradict themselves, it's a cute character quirk rather than a moral failing. For a Dalek story about neglect giving way to Dalek intrusion that's actually in the text, look at how the long game leads to the Series 1 finale. The Doctor arrogantly dismantling their state apparatus without actually understanding it leads to the acceleration and increased brutality of the Daleks' control of the human empire. Speaking of things being in the text, The Witch is familiar. I agree with Gig's take on the Daleks in that episode, being that the Daleks are united in a kind of class solidarity, and that the episode hinges on their denial of death, but I have a few problems with the points surrounding this. Neo said that it'll go over most fans' heads. I agree with this. The motley crew of dialect models in that story can be seen as illustrating a move away from racial purity on the dialect's part, and the resurrection of Ray Cusick's take on Skyro architecture can be seen as a move towards nostalgia. But all this is undermined by the fact that we, as viewers, fundamentally take pleasure in these things, or at least we're supposed to. The fan reaction to the downplaying of old dialects in Asylum was very loud. The simplest assumption, therefore, is that their prominence in Series 9 is nothing more than an apology for that, and the fact that their presence is never actually commented on in dialogue seems to support that. And as for the Dalek City, I believe it's a safe assumption that that design was revived because Moffat wanted to revive a great design. Ray Cusick's city design is iconic, unmatched in its inherent hostility to humans, its austerity, that retro-futurist minimalism that screams Dalek. If there was a salient point to be made about a retreat into nostalgia, maybe they could have had some of the set swabble show the shoddy craftsmanship, masking the facade beneath. Instead the city argues for its own inclusion by virtue of its own sheer beauty. On the point of Moffat's dialects again, it's true that his dialect stories work to enrich the characterization of the Doctor, because the Doctor is clearly Moffat's focus, but I would argue that by exclusively defining the dialects by their relationship to outside actors, the Doctor and Davros for instance, he strips them of their agency within the narrative. In Moffat's dialects, I see a divorce from immediacy. They're viewed entirely on their own terms, in their parliament, in their houses. They're always fighting a sexy space war. They're so far away from us in their terrariums, it's slightly hard to believe we could ever really worry about them. If Moffat's dialects are animals, as the hunter-prey scene in Magician's Apprentice shows us, to that I say, we know animals. We understand animals. This planet is brimming with wildlife, and what we do with that is abuse it. We tear down their habitats, systematically slaughter them for food. I'm terrified of crocodiles, but if I step into the river where I know there are crocodiles, then it's my fault. And it being my fault is not something that I want to map onto a Dalek with all its associations. I said earlier about RTD lending sophisticated characterization and individuality to the dialects. And if a fascist collective having individuality seems a contradiction, Russell T Davies understands this intimately. His dialects are full of contradictions. They cherish order but they're hyper-emotional and frantic. They're disgusted by humans but require them to survive. They claim to be removed from decadent emotions but clearly relish in talking down the Cybermen. They worship tradition but they have a secret cult dedicated to covertly devising innovative ways of killing. There are shades of occultism of Nazis, definitely, but more appropriately for an invention like dialects, RTD is really incorporating more shades of what we've come to understand as the common elements of fascism, as posited by Umberto Eco. The embrace of different traditions despite internal contradictions and the cult of being born to be a hero. Think of how the dialect in Evolution of the Dialects excitedly declares, I will be the destroyer of our greatest enemy. And of course, the way he risked offending audiences by explicitly portraying the dialects as religious fundamentalists. RTD's portrayal of Daleks avoids poesy and jingoism, a more fittingly prosaic portrayal than ever seen on screen. The writer who is fascinated with pleasure versus pain, faith and faithlessness, and the capability of the collective to perpetrate serious horror under the influence of societal inertia. Russell T Davies is the best at writing Daleks, simply because he's the best at writing humans. Not everything you introduced was successful. Uh, you introduced a new design for the
1: Daleks. How... Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. oh, on our mugs over there. Yeah. Um how hard is it, redesigning an icon?
4: Well, I, I would appear to make it look very difficult. It was, an, it was, a, it was a salutary lesson, and let's just be clear uh, in talking about the redesigned Daleks, that the fault resides entirely with me, not with any of the brilliant team who made the new Daleks, right? They're, they're, they, they were beautiful in many respects, but it was my mistake uh, and a completely unnecessary one. But I'll tell you what was interesting about it. It was a fascinating lesson that I, I sort of never forgot, is we made the Daleks huge stupid idea. <laughs> Why? Well, you make the dialects huge, you just, move the t- you just move the camera further away and you make the doctor smaller. Now if you've seen those actual props, um, they're gorgeous. You go, you, if you go and see them in real life, or you see them on stage, they look amazing. Where they don't look good is on television, the only place <laughs> where it matters. It's not lost on me that when we
2: consider the virtues of Davies' Daleks, we hear a great deal about series one, but only a gloss on their later, arguably more famous appearances. RTD used his big Dalek ideas straight away, and then from that point on, the Daleks' chief significance is as continuity, being that thing the Doctor thought he destroyed, but they're back again, and occasionally fan-wanked like them bantering with Cybermen. And when it comes to illuminating ideas and theme through Daleks, eventually we arrive at these empty moral challenges from Davros to the Doctor, and some hand-wringing from the Doctor about whether it's right to kill all of the Daleks, and particularly in light of how much of the stories that work hinge on humanity and human foibles, as Tit noted, plus factoring in that had the nation state not granted the rights, we'd have had a series about toclophane, I can't help but think that they don't really need to be Daleks for a lot of these stories to work, to the extent that the post-Series 1 ones work at all, which for evolution of the Daleks is not a great deal. You know, a few notes that ring true to echoes characterisation of fascism gets swallowed in this incoherent finale, a mishmash of humans with Dalek DNA and accusations of genocide flying around like paintballs. And over the years, this devaluation of Daleks that occurs over the course of successive tenant seasons rather dampens their fulfilment of any ethical responsibility. By Journey's end, their plan is literally just to vaporise all universes, which is so utterly removed from anything true to life or how institutional power is operated. See, one may talk about... moffat being distanced from humanity by not literally writing stories about earth but these narratives about fighting cybermen from the void face penises reality bombs they're distanced even on the metaphorical level and setting them on earth simply disguises that by contrast moffat embracing what you call the uh, visual pleasure of retro Dalek designs and architecture is phrased another way embracing artifice fakeness, unreality. Distance, or the Fremdung's effect, as the theatre practitioner Bertolt Brecht put it, is a tool for allowing us to consider a story on levels beyond raw emotion. And frankly, I object in the strongest terms to this idea that ideas going over some viewers' heads makes them meaningless. We're talking about these episodes years after they aired, because thinking about them beyond the moment of transmission is how they have longevity. It accounts for most of their existence. As for Chibnall, his presentation of this ethically broken setting does not inherently give the excuse of being satire I mean would you say the same thing about Wonder Woman 84 like media legitimises its worldview when it fails to express any resistance to it and if you want to talk about music conveying wrongness whenever 13 wins in these stories her incredibly optimistic uplifting and bouncy theme starts playing in the background the episodes encourage us to see Daleks as wrong but never the Doctor even her decision to destroy a TARDIS in Revolution is not actually critiqued by the narrative It's something that we, as fans, if it doesn't go over our heads, have to think about. Of course, it doesn't help that both RTD and Chibnall ultimately pop massive holes in the idea of taking the Daleks seriously at all, because with Chibnall letting one be completely manhandled and strapped with a microwave, or RTD leaning fully into their silliness by having Donna spin them around like dodgems, it cuts sharply against the way the stories spend most of their time presenting the Daleks, as these things to take incredibly seriously, these sources of massive threat and danger. See, by contrast, Moffat is a master of thematic unity. He draws on specific observations about the role of the Daleks in the programme over time. For example, Asylum has those fascinating comments that it's in fear of the Doctor that the Daleks have grown so powerful, and equally, that it may be a strange admiration of him that makes them so bad at killing him. This idea of an intrinsic, inseparable relationship from day one, indeed the Doctor bearing a certain degree of responsibility for the Daleks, functions as something of an answer to that problem of using the Daleks to absolve our idea of goodness or heroism and essentially the 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 existence of daleks as this villainous presence that has a fandom is what's perpetuated this problematic idea as you put it being perpetuated and moffat's take on the daleks embeds an answer to that into the show and it problematizes that relationship and that presence by putting some of the implications onto our ideas of goodness and being a good man and i think that helps strengthen the idea So, rather than nostalgic pandering, Moffat makes a point of giving the Daleks new material, delving into them in ways that keep them interesting in their own right, rather than simply a ritualised part of the cultural landscape, shooting people with CGI lasers, blowing up the universe, or doing other completely things that are devoid of thematic content. He refuses to let the Daleks become settled or safe, and that, more than anything else, is crucial to ensuring they continue to mean anything.
1: Right from the word go, Chris had a vision in his head for this set
2: piece. He knew he wanted this showdown between the Dalek and the army. Surrender!
3: The soldiers have been, uh, they've been transported in and they have a standoff and then they meet a swift and brutal end um, because they don't know what they're dealing with.
4: And action! The
3: Dalek race is supreme!
1: We live in the real world. Russell T Davies and Stephen Moffat wrote some great episodes with the Daleks in them, but when it comes to Daleks, representative symbols of Nazism, evil obsession with genetic purity and death cult ideology and exterminating anyone different from them, I think seriousness is due. The Daleks banter and speak in unconvincing American accents in RTD's era, and in Moffat's era, the Doctor seems unfazed by talk of literal Dalek prison camps, and is never seen to make any real attempt to try and extinguish genocidal Dalek armies after they escape his grasp in victory of the Daleks. We're just reset to a status quo where, yeah, there are genocidal Dalek armies in space, even on a revived Scaro with prison camps, and the Doctor just occasionally has a brief tiff with them. Should we be comfortable with this? I'm not just questioning whether it fits the Doctor's characterisation to be so relatively chill with armies of Daleks doing their thing off screen, after we had years where the Doctor was justifiably livid about surviving remnants of Time War Daleks popping up, I'm questioning whether having the Daleks as these enemies we love to hate, forever there, happily secure and extant in the status quo of a show, is appropriate, given how clear a parallel to Nazis they are. Chris Chibnall's take on the Daleks is actionable, it inspires activity things are not neatly wrapped up, things remain to make us question and argue and hash out the politics that feed into what the Daleks represent. You can split hairs over satire and the internal consistency of these fictions and the intended effective scenes and formal effectiveness, but we're not debating who the best showrunner is and we're not debating what the best episodes are, we're arguing what the best take on the Daleks is, the best take on these Nazi parallels. What Chibnall does, dragging the horror of the Daleks and the terrifying inadequacy so many of our leaders and institutions have in dealing with extensional and insidious threats like the Daleks, what that can be used to represent, that is the best take on the Daleks. It's scary and it makes you think. The very fact that Gig argues the monstrousness of the Doctor destroying a living TARDIS isn't in the text is what I'm talking about. Chibnall's Dalek episodes get us talking about morality. Tom critiquing the bounciness of some of the resolution Daleks music, and thus opening up a conversation about whether the Daleks are depicted with too much glee, this is what I'm talking about. Tom misinterprets me when he suggests I'm arguing Chibnall's Dalek episodes are cautionary tales of letting the Daleks take over. I'm arguing Chibnall's Dalek take is superior because it invites these very sorts of discussions. Gig says the series 9 premiere has us talking about it years later. Yeah, it does. Did it have us debating material 2015 politics when it came out, the way Revolution of the Daleks has spurred this discussion? One fan might think Chibnall is a great showrunner and interpret the vague protest scene with the corporate Dalek drone pacifying protesters as canny political commentary and take away the scariness and relevance of Daleks that way. Others might think he's a terrible, terrible showrunner and point to the Doctor's inadequacy in dealing with humanity betraying Robertson as woeful ineptitude in dealing with her time-honoured enemy, the Daleks. My point is that in both and in every situation, the viewer is considering the potency and the politics wrapped up in the Daleks. This is Chibnall's victory. One cannot just sit back and be entertained by his Dalek episodes. They grab the viewer by the head and force them to look at the terror of the Daleks and the horror that they represent. The quality of the episodes in the minds of viewers is immaterial, because the politics are immediate and unavoidable. I say, That inspiring viewers to argue about the Daleks, to argue about the Doctor's morality in combating them, to argue about how she and her companions talk about them, I say this is a thousand times more appropriate than viewers nodding their heads and enjoying a Dalek romp or dramatic character-based finales with Daleks, no matter how well executed they may be. This stuff is serious. The Daleks are serious. We can't so clearly parallel them with the Nazis if we're not prepared to entertain that seriousness into the actual show and discourse surrounding it. We can't escape into these Chibnall Dalek episodes. They're taking place in the modern day with parallels of real-world leaders with very material ideological blind spots and deficiency in those opposing the Daleks, these forced consideration of our real material world and politics. I argue this is the most appropriate take on the Daleks to inspire these very sorts of discussions. In Revolution of the Daleks, the Doctor and her companions self-righteously screech at Robertson for supposedly pretending not to know what a Dalek is. They don't actually define what a Dalek is to him. They moralise and shout at him. They never once tangibly explain what the threat of a Dalek is, let alone how to combat it. This is commentary that means something to our actual lives, in which it is argued Dalek-esque threats materialise. It's not a brilliant redefinition of the Doctor's character like 2005's Dalek, and it's not a dazzlingly clever exploration of internal Dalek politics like series 9's premiere. What it is, is real, meaningful, and identifiable and applicable to us in the real world. It gets us talking and it gets us thinking. Look, I don't expect viewers to necessarily enjoy Chibnall's Dalek episodes more than RTDs or Moffat's. I'm not even arguing he had the best Dalek episodes. I'm arguing that one way or another, he has the best take on the Daleks through spawning these various sorts of discussions from preventing us from escaping into entertainment and escapism other Dalek episodes might very well offer all I'm asking is for you to consider that Chibnall's take on the Daleks, however it's arrived at, is the superior take because it best channels the evils the Daleks are inspired by, it best channels the reality of how such evils proliferate and persist in our very real world, it gets people talking about these political and moral issues the Daleks are based on, and it compels us to consider the deficiencies with, and thus how we should focus on improving, the ways what we might call Dalekism is materially being fought.
3: Oh, uh, double Doctor Who was rubbish after I left is really what's going on. So, and it carried on for a few years and it managed, it stumbled along. Get my coat with you, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray, love together at last. Yeah, we are. Hooray.
1: Okay, the debate is now over. What you're about to hear are two separate little debrief conversations we had over the debate. These are where we break character, so to speak, and chat and go over the debate we just had. Because, of course, like a debate club, part of the fun of these is us getting assigned positions we might not instinctively agree with ourselves, at least at first, but finding the fun and creative ways we feel we can argue with them in our own voices. So, the first debrief conversation you're about to hear was recorded immediately after the debate was recorded, which was actually in 2021 and was between all three of us. And the second debrief you'll hear was recorded in November 2022 between myself and Gig after Chibnall's era had ended. So you're about to hear us debrief about how much we align personally with the positions we argued for. So I'll start. Did I really believe what I was arguing? Uh, I honestly don't know. (laughs) I don't know at this point. I decided to argue for Chibnall because he typically has the takes I favour the least among the showrunners, and so I thought preparing these arguments for him would be the most creative and fulfilling position for me. Uh, But as I developed and argued the points for Chibnall's take, I kind of got genuinely convinced by some of the things I was arguing. Uh, I know I enjoy watching some of Moffat's and the 2005 uh, Russell T Davies Dalek episodes more than Chibnall's, for sure. But I'm kind of bristling at the half measure where we equivocate Daleks so directly with Nazis, but then also have them be... The cutesy merchandise monsters or have the doctor so chill with them swanning around the galaxy with their prison camps and whatnot now. I'm not sure that whatever Chibnall's intent with the Daleks is that that's necessarily better, but I do think it puts us in a position to think about these things more for whatever that's worth, which is debatable in its own right. Uh, so yeah, but in this case, I think I accidentally sincerely convinced myself into preferring Chibnall. But gig! Gig! How honest was your opinion? Do you actually think Moffat's takes on the Daleks was the best?
2: Um, yeah, I do, but I think that is probably down to my own preference for just basically well, I love you know digging into stories in the way that we often do and sort of picking them apart. And I think the whole the whole disagreement between these positions, I think, ultimately comes down to where you land on this idea of how to to what extent is it even worth thinking or talking about these stories in the first place and and i think i was i was not i was never entirely swayed by perhaps the other positions i think perhaps because they were sort of operating from i think some really different viewpoints about how we relate to art and stuff. I think it's just, it's very thorny at the end of the day.
1: I was fascinated by the areas we all kind of arrived to, particularly in some of the political approaches and the kind of ideological ways we quite differed. Tom, how much did you differ from what you were actually arguing or do you believe everything you said?
0: Um, I kind of believe what I said. So I probably would say, if you asked me on the street, I think I would say that Russell T Davies is the best dialect writer. I think he... He has his dialects are the best dialects when you look at them as characters, um, and it's kind of for the reasons that I said uh, in the debate. You know, it's his Russell T Davies is capturing of the the terrifying collective. Um, I think that translates onto dialects really well. As for Moffat, I love Moffat, um, and I think that he has a dialect masterpiece as well, which Gig has identified correctly as *The Magician's Apprentice* and *The Witch's Familiar*. I think Russell T Davies and Moffat both have one dialect masterpiece between them. In RTD's case, it's the series one finale. But according to the terms that I set at the start of the debate by bringing up Adorno and sort of leveling the playing field, as it were, by those terms, I do think that Moffat um, falls short uh, in that his dialect stories are so abstracted and they're also so intellectually rich. Which, of course, as you, I think, correctly say, Gig, is a virtue of them. It just depends on how closely you view the dialects as a as Nazis and b as fascists generally. As you say, it's Thorny. <laughs> thorny doesn't even begin to cover it.
2: Um, I'll say, i must say I wasn't expecting the sort of the, the sideswipe of kind of going after the retro Daleks in Series 9 for kind of being an apology for the, uh, the lack of... I think that was, it was really, that was a really good point, honestly. Just the sheer anger that people had over there not, the not being have classic Daleks in Asylum. I think that sort of embodies the idea of that toxic nostalgia. And it's true that Moffat doesn't really... You know, Moffat doesn't really go out of his way to kind of condemn that toxic nostalgia explicitly in the show. Rather, he sort of panders to it a bit by giving us all that great Dalek stuff. But I, at the same time, I was kind of pleased that it perhaps lets us talk about uh, the idea of visual pleasure and enjoying Daleks. Because I think even if we talk about presenting Daleks prosaically, I think in 2005, they come back, they've got this really cool, snazzy new Time War bronze design, and I think at the end of the day you can't escape this whole thing of like if we're doing these you know sci-fi aliens that fly around and shoot people you know you're it to a certain degree it is it is creating entertainment you're pandering out you can't you can never truly convey the horrors of like the holocaust for example through a dinky little pepper pot shaker
1: i n- i know how ridiculous yeah. this sounds but that's kind of why i sway myself to the chibnall position is because his episodes aren't as entertaining one way or another
0: yeah <laughs> Yeah, so when I talked about the nostalgia thing, um, I was very careful in the way I phrased it not to sort of demolish your take on which is Familiar because that would be uncalled for because it's so interesting and I I think it is there in the episode. Um, and by the way, read Gig's blog because it's some of the best Dalek writing on the internet. Oh, yeah. Uh, IMO. It's fantastic. I guess on the subject of Neo's argument, um, first of all, it should be said that you you bravely volunteered to defend Chibnall, so I guess yes, kudos yes. for that in itself. Yeah. You fell on that sword. Um I think your arguments without wanting to disrespect what you did, cause I know we all put a lot of work into this, but I think your arguments um, lessened in strength as a natural consequence of focusing more on what's actually in the episode. So like with your first argument, I was really impressed with sort of the unexpected angle you took it from. And then you started talking about the tritone, which was hilarious and I loved it. And then finally the, um, the idea that because it gets a reaction out of us um, it's, it's the best. I found that less supportable as it went on, um, but all in all all in all valiantly argued definitely and I guess in the in the interest of mutual culpability, I think I said that Moffat's stories used the dialects basically to prop up his stories about the doctor. I think RTD is probably equally guilty of doing that for the companions.
1: My difficulty because I think you guys will agree with me if I say. I had a little bit more of a difficult task than both of you. My difficulty was the first time I write out my arguments, I was arguing very straightforwardly that Chibnall's take on the darks is best because, and then I listed off the kind of reasons you might see online for people earnestly arguing this. And then I felt so uncomfortable with that, uh, not just because I didn't believe it, but because I felt like it's weird to misrepresent arguments you don't entertain or believe at all. It just felt like a very strange exercise, almost a cruel exercise in kind of unwittingly parodying people that I didn't want to parody. And then I tried a really creative take where I tried to totally read a Chibnall is a genius thing because he frames the Daleks, blah, 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 trying to read in a narrative that wasn't there, but, you know, with creative reinterpretation, you can argue was, I felt the place I had to settle on was the real world because that's the only place where I can ground what Chibnall is doing as superior and actionable to what the other two are doing. Did you guys struggle with developing your arguments like I did there?
0: Yeah, I really struggled to confine everything RTD does into, yeah, five-minute sequences. That was the main difficulty I had. I don't know what, what the difficulty on the off End was, if any.
2: It wasn't easy. I mean, I took a while on that last one. But, like, I think mainly it was just a case of looking for ways to, like... Worm in the rebuttals I had to the very good points that were made against me uh, on all fronts, and just trying to slot them in and just gloss over any um, total like uh, loose ends there. Like uh, I would say, um, it it was a challenge, but I was it was mostly just kind of a case of me trying to just stubbornly hold on to my existing points and sort of try and make them sound a bit uh, less uh, thin than they perhaps are. But no, I'd say it was um, it was a good experience, I
3: think.
1: Yes, we were very happy to have you on. Yes, absolutely. But will, but will the Daleks the still be scary? Have they
2: still got the sink plunger? They have, but
3: you've never seen a sink plunger be so deadly. It's like all <laughs> the things that people laugh at. It's a great episode. I didn't write it. It's written by a man called Robert Shearman, who's a brilliant writer. And everything that everyone laughs about in the Daleks is addressed in the script and turned on its head and turned yeah. deadly, as you know, in the fact they can't get upstairs. or oh, they fly! I mean, it's it's a great fun episode, and it's like it's very much for people who remember the Daleks from old, but also if you're eight years old, it introduces them as the most deadly enemy from scratch. It's great fun. It's one of my favourite episodes. And
4: I you you
1: were- I included that 2000s RTD clip because. Well, we've had one debrief, yes, but for second debrief, Tom Tit's not with us, so I'm throwing him a bone with a clip of his chosen showrunner here. And, of course, because RTD is our new showrunner, a development which happened a while after we recorded the debate. Uh, we recorded it early-ish 2021, so it also preceded Eve and Flux and the Centenary. Uh, how do you think that plays with everything we did?
2: I think the Daleks have had a few extra appearances since we recorded that. Um, but given that this is Chibnall we're talking about, and also the way Chibnall approached them kind of maybe changed a little bit compared to those two specials we did discuss of his. Yeah.
4: Um.
2: Well, I'd say the most affected is probably your segments of the argument. Uh, maybe not a huge amount, but maybe just a little bit. Do you think there are certain nuances that the yeah. the the context is, uh, that are added to what you said now that uh, we've had some more Dalek episodes?
1: Yeah. Well. As I was thinking over this, I think I did what I was talking about in the first debrief and I thought over how can I kind of wedge this into my argument like in an actual functional way, like how can I read Eve a little bit politically to fit into my other arguments and I was thinking of, well, you know, they all use explosives at the end of the story to blow up, you know, the the fascists or whatever that have been continually killing them and all that sort of stuff but it, it wasn't really working and so I think... I'll throw up my hands and I think the way the darks are done an Eve and in Flux and the Centenary is a lot more tangential, a lot more like how I was saying Moffat and RTD sometimes use him, which is it's not just to scare you. It's just kind of as a side thing to tell the actual story of the day, like in Eve, the story of the romances, which are obviously the big focus of the episode and whatnot. So it's not really a foundation of Auschwitz thing so much as the Debussy doing the camp transportation this time. It's adding a bit of acceptability because they're used in such a tangential way against how I was arguing resolution and revolution do them. But the question is which showrunner has the best take on the Daleks and sometimes they have more than one take. So, So I'm clinging to uh, the first take Chibnall did with them is is the best, but perhaps not how he started using them afterwards.
2: One thing in particular, um, I remember you brought up how uh Moff would have the Daleks to be just floating off in space, mm. off doing their thing, off having camps or whatever. And later on in Chibhu, like he ends up kind of reverting to that status quo of the Daleks just being out there. So um like in um like during Flux, they're just out there. Uh, even just like Eve and power as well. They're just like they just happen to be out off doing their thing. Rather than the individual one coming to to earth or whatever it's always part of like the the larger just omnipresent dalek force so it's like a reversion to how moffat was doing it in that sense
1: yeah it's just kind of normalization of yeah daleks are out there
2: even the way eve uses them as like a device almost it, it almost reminded me a bit of moffat maybe not of moffat's dalek stories but just in the way when like a, a monster is just like a metaphor for the rom-com or whatever <laughs> like it's 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 a surprisingly uncharacteristic chibnall uh episode isn't it it's just weird it's just weird for him To actually put that much effort in.
1: Eve's got a lot of stuff on its mind, which is to do with characters and, like, the the genre of the week it's taking on with romance. So, yeah, it does feel kind of like more of a Moffat thing. I've never really liked, after New Who, you know, made such a deal of the Time War and, you know, how Eccleston and Tennant reacted to the Daleks, just having them floating around sits weirdly. But I think that actually kind of fits more in Chibnall's era, the way, you know, things are just the way they are. So, yes, there's these evil... Uh, genocidal maniacs just out in space and let's throw up our hands and they're meant to be around. That's how things work. So... Kind of fits more than then, if anything.
2: Yeah, th- there's, there's that sense of passivity that came in when Moffat just started having them out there. I remember, um, Missy mentions in the Death in Heaven, she, she suggests to the doctor, hey, you can go and fight the Dalek camps now you have to see <laughs> the army. So it's implied that because he doesn't have that, he can't, he can't go and save all those people in there. There's just a thing that's just out there that he's just not currently dealing with, which is, um, certainly interesting take. I guess that idea of a, just a <laughs> inherent passivity.
1: Yeah. Do you think any of the, RTD2 stuff plays with the arguments Tom was making in RTD's favour?
2: See, the thing is with um, the, the arguments Tom was making in RTD's favour, they all revolved around Series 1, naturally. <laughs> and I think, well, it does put us in an interesting position with um, RTD2 because we don't know... Whether it's going to be, I guess, a new series one, in quotes, or just, I guess, the the continuity of where we left off at the end, with the end of time, I guess, like a direct continuation of the old RTD or like an honest to God new reinvention. I mean, it, it's really hard to say, um, but I feel like it, it maybe doesn't... Um, we don't even know how or in what context Daleks might appear in RCD2. So it just feels like a huge question mark still. Yeah. It's quite interesting.
1: I think both Tom and myself were kind of selective with the Dalek takes we were looking at from our showrunners to make our arguments, whereas perhaps you were a bit more encompassing with what your showrunner did over time. So, yeah, I think both of us are maybe less affected by everything that's changed since... 2021 compared to yourself
2: yeah i think i mean I, I guess it helps that like <clears throat> uh w- with moffat's things being inherently all over the place just in terms of the ideas like it, it was easy to just go scooping bits and pieces i think i gave myself the easiest job i think certainly of the three of you but also just generally of the the, the, the argument I decided to go with about, oh, all the thematically rich ideas and stuff, it just gives you a very wide field to just <laughs> pluck from any any story. So, yeah. yeah, rather than having to focus on like one or two. Although I did notice, I, I think I came back to which is Familiar a lot, probably just because I have a huge bias towards that one.
1: Yeah. I should say, even if we decided to start this debate today, I still would have done the same arguments, just because I think resolution and revolution are the richest for a kind of take that presents itself that I find more interesting to talk about with Chibnall is I wouldn't have done something completely different with Eve and the later Dalek appearances. They, like I said, they feel pretty tangential to the point I was trying to make, for better or worse. Yeah. So, things span out the way they were going to span out.
2: Trying to talk about survivors of the Flux Daleks <laughs> or the Power of the Doctor Daleks. I mean, there's not really anything to even to talk about, really, is there? Yeah. I, mean, I think maybe, like, Eve as an episode feels substantial enough that yeah. I think maybe it might have been a bit more influential, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> at the same time, like you're right. It doesn't really, um, it's still fundamentally a very different take from the whole resolution and revolution thing. Yeah. I say I must say, um, even after all this time, uh, I'm still glad Tom went first, because what a hell of an opener. <laughs> what, what an opening salvo. <laughs> Knocked me for six, even though revisiting it. Great opener. Yeah, I'm glad he went first.
1: Yes, he did great.
2: Also, I love the cloister bell going off whenever someone yaps too long. That That's great, great addition.
1: I think that was just me and Tom this time as well.
2: Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, I did notice. I was able to, um, I was a good boy i stay within the time limit
1: well it suits rtd to not know when to leave doesn't it
2: yes yeah, a very good point very good point
1: point. and that wraps us up well and truly for good thank you for listening please chime off in the comments with your thoughts on which showrunner has the best take on the daleks and or your thoughts on our arguments and points we made too who do you agree with more disagree with more do you have points and arguments in mind that we didn't arrive at at all Let us know, join the debate, and thank you again for listening in.